Hello, my name is Leslie Goodburn. I'm a Pancreatic Cancer UK supporter, and you're here today listening to some podcasts that we're doing. The reason that we're doing the podcast is because there are two small words, pancreatic cancer, two small words that actually have a massive impact on people, that cause devastation, that create psychological, emotional and physical pain. Before 2014, I didn't really know a great deal about pancreatic cancer. I knew that it was one of the cancers that had a poor survival rate, but that was probably all I knew. In 2014, my husband Seth was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. We were thrust into a world of palliative and end-of-life care, and unfortunately, 33 days after diagnosis, Seth died from pancreatic cancer. Seth didn't really stand a chance, couldn't get treatment because actually the disease was diagnosed at such a late stage that there wasn't the possibility to have any other outcome than Seth was going to die. So after Seth died, spent a lot of time thinking about how to support Pancreatic Cancer UK to raise awareness of the disease, of the signs and symptoms, to raise money. So I've spent the last four years working with various different organisations, getting GPs trained, raising funds through doing things with Emma Bridgewater Pottery, doing charity balls, um, standing in the, in the street during Awareness Month and giving out leaflets to raise awareness. Um, Last year we did some work around patient stories, this year we're doing the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer podcasts. The podcasts are designed to give everyone who listens to them an idea about what the pancreas does, why it's important, what its function is, what happens when cancer forms, what the signs and symptoms of the disease are, how people can recognise those recognise those signs and symptoms so that they can go to the GP and hopefully get diagnosed early enough for treatment to be an option. We're going to talk to some of the UK's leading clinicians, nurses, allied health professionals, experts in various different fields, and most importantly, we're going to talk to some patients and families who've experienced the disease. So over the course of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, which is November, the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer podcasts will be broadcast and it'll give you all an opportunity to understand the disease much better, to think about how you can support raising awareness going forward and to spread the word about pancreatic cancer and hopefully make sure that in the future many more people are diagnosed earlier and people are given the chance for treatment, the chance that Seth never had. I'm Charlotte Foster, podcaster and journalist. Now, I'm happy to admit I didn't know very much about pancreatic cancer before I began these podcasts. So along the way, I hope I'm learning as much as you are. In this episode, we're looking at what happens when you start to feel poorly and pancreatic cancer is suspected and then diagnosed. Now, there will be some medical terms, as you would expect, but they are going to be explained along the way. Derek O'Reilly is a consultant liver and pancreatic surgeon at Manchester Royal Infirmary. Now, his job is to operate on people who've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at an early enough stage to benefit from an operation. Just a quick note, um, when I did speak to Derek, he was on call at the time and the signal that we had was a bit patchy, so please do excuse the audio quality. 
the operation um, that most people uh, with pancreatic cancer uh, are likely to have is called a Whipple's operation. And it's just really removing the, um, the head of the pancreas, which is on the right-hand side of, 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 of any patient. And it's complex because um, that part of the pancreas is intimately connected uh, to lots of other um, organs like the duodenum, which is part of the bowel, part of the intestine, um, the bile duct runs through that part of the pancreas. So in order to do a cancer operation, you need to remove not just the tumour, but a good margin, if possible, of healthy tissue beyond it, because there can be tiny little cells of cancer which have spread out uh, beyond you know, a lump that you can feel or see. And so we, we like to get, a, in cancer surgery in general, a margin of healthy tissue uh, to get the best results for the long term and to reduce um, the risk of it coming back uh, or what we call local recurrence. So that's why we do a cancer uh, operation uh, that involves removing the, um, the head of the pancreas, the bile duct and the duodenum, sometimes part of the stomach as well. And then once all that is removed, there has to be a lot of, um, all these organs have to be joined back together. Uh, to the bowel so that you can have normal uh, function afterwards. So there's really two phases to it. It's a, a big operation to remove that part of the pancreas and its associated organs. And then the second part is to join everything back up together again. And that's the commonest uh, operation in pancreatic cancer surgery. Now, if you do have it in the, the left half of the pancreas, it's similar, but possibly less involved because that part of the pancreas is uh, a bit freer and is not attached to other organs. So it's often a less complex and less major operation uh, when it's not a witness, when it's a often called a left-sided or a distal uh, pancreatic uh, operation. It sounds like you have challenges then as a surgeon treating pancreatic cancer. Um, Yes, it is a challenging operation, really, but um, I think the challenges are not the operation. Um, so certainly the easiest part of my week is when I'm, when I'm operating. Uh, the challenges are more, um, I, I think, in discussing this with people. Uh, and that's something that that's, should never be underestimated. And if I say there's one challenge that I have, it's possibly managing expectations. Um, and, you know... It, what is invaluable for all of us, um, for both as doctors and as patients, is the role of the uh, nurse specialist, um, which takes a lot of the burden of communication uh, from us. And it, from the patient's point of view, it's an invaluable link uh, to the hospital and often a source of emotional support. So a, a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer is often devastating. Um, people start looking at the internet and probably get a variety of good quality and poor quality information from there so providing people with accurate information is, is vital um, and I think getting people then to a realistic um, understanding of what they can expect both in the short and the long term uh, is important so if there's anything challenging about uh, pancreatic cancer I would say that's the most challenging aspect just you know the conversations and getting the understanding uh, as best as it can be. So that's the challenge. What makes your job rewarding then? Um, 
Well, it, it certainly is rewarding when um, you often see people coming back to uh, the outpatient clinic even a month or two afterwards and you don't recognize them because you first met them, they were yellow, uh, often a little debilitated and undernourished. And it is true, sometimes you don't recognize them, they've, they've recovered so well. Um, it's tragic if the disease recurs early. That's a very difficult uh, situation. Uh, but again, we I have patients who are alive five and now coming up to 10 years. So. I guess it's the knowledge that uh, you have done some good in this, uh, you know, toughest of cancers with, with the hardest, you know, uh, statistics about uh, long-term survival. But yes, with modern surgery, uh, centralized, uh, and followed by modern chemotherapy, uh, a lot of people are um, alive, walking around, having a perfectly normal life, and uh, seeing milestones in their life. Uh, happening. And that's what makes it rewarding. Uh, so the knowledge that you, you are doing some good. Sadly, though, most people are diagnosed too late to be able to have that Whipple operation or the other operation as described by Derek. So what happens if you are in that situation? Well, Dr. Pippa Corrie is a consultant medical oncologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. She spoke to me about what it is she does. Pancreatic cancer is a difficult cancer to treat. Less than 10% of pancreatic cancer patients are diagnosed with disease early enough for a surgeon to operate and remove the cancer. So that means that most people have disease that's already spread away from the primary pancreatic site. Some of those tumors are what we call locally advanced um, so they've spread in the local area around the pancreas. And sometimes we try and see whether we can manage those cancers with either chemotherapy or chemoradiotherapy, which is combining a localized treatment. But for the majority of people, pancreatic cancer begins to spread beyond the local area. And that's where people like myself come in because we use drugs that go around the whole body trying to kill cancer cells wherever they may have spread to throughout the body. So that's a difficult thing to do because pancreatic cancer is very resistant to this kind of drugs and, and the kind of drugs that you may think about are, are what we call chemotherapy drugs. And pancreatic cancer is, is quite resistant to chemotherapy um, and so that is a big problem for us to try and, and, and treat a cancer that isn't likely to respond to the drugs that we have routinely available to us. So we do a lot of what we call clinical trials where we're testing new drugs, new types of drugs that may work in different ways that we've learned about because we're trying to understand how pancreatic cancer grows. So we're trying to be clever and design different types of drugs that might be able to stop that cancer from growing. It sounds like it can be incredibly frustrating at times when you're trying to treat something that, I say, doesn't want to be treated. Obviously, the patient wants to be treated, but the, the cancer itself, the cancer cells are incredibly resistant. Yes, and it's made more difficult because people, as, as I said, people do tend to be diagnosed with the disease at quite a late stage. So whereas for some types of cancers, it becomes evident quite early on in the, the life of the cancer. With pancreatic cancer, it can be growing insidiously 
deep inside the body for some while um, so that by the time it becomes evident it is quite extensive um, and that makes people poorly so unfortunately many people who are diagnosed with with pancreatic cancer have what we call advanced disease and they're also quite symptomatic of that disease and they're not strong enough to be able to withstand some of the the side effects of the kind of of drugs that we tend to use so so that is also a, a big problem for us that not only is it conventionally resistant it's also um, very advanced when diagnosed and and therefore um, many people are not well enough even to try treatment for their disease we've touched on this briefly but if you wouldn't mind just explaining what what types of chemotherapy are available for people please so the kind of drugs we use um, routinely are what we call cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs. They're drugs that work against cells that are growing quickly. And these are the kind of drugs that have been around for the last 50 odd years. Um, and they make marginal differences to the outcomes of people with pancreatic cancer. So a standard drug that we use is one called gemcitabine, which is generally quite well tolerated, which is good in this kind of disease, but the benefits are, are, are limited. And what we've also done over the years is try and combine gemcitabine with other drugs, other cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs. So we have what we call um, doublet chemotherapy and actually triplet chemotherapy, a different combination of, of three chemotherapy drugs um, to see if we can actually improve outcomes. So these are uh, chemotherapy regimens that we can offer routinely and we can go from a single agent to two agents to three agents depending upon if the patients are, are strong enough and fit enough to be able to withstand the potential side effects. So the more drugs we give, the more side effects we're likely to cause. So the fittest of the patients will treat with the, the toughest chemotherapy because we want to try and and, and kill off those cancer cells and, and that triplet regimen we, we people may hear about is called fulfirinox um, and um, and so yes so we use that for, for probably our fitter patients uh, we use our doublet chemotherapy things like gemcitabine combined with abraxane or gemcitabine combined with capecitabine um, for people who we think can cope with a reasonable amount of, of treatment, but may not be the fittest. Um, but for people who aren't terribly fit, we may try and just give them gemcitabine. So those are our conventional chemotherapy drugs that we tend to use. They're the same drugs pretty much the world over. Um, but we do do a lot of clinical trials now where we're testing novel drugs. Um, so maybe biological drugs, immunotherapy type agents. Um, maybe on their own or combined with, with chemotherapy to see if we can improve outcomes, but they're very much within what we call clinical trials. So how do clinical trials work then? So when we, um, when we have a, a, a new, if we understand, for example, if we learn, for example, in the laboratory about um, how the cancer is growing, sometimes it becomes apparent that there's a particular um, uh, pathway in the cell that is um, promoting cancer growth and we work with chemists and pharmacists and clever biologists who um, are able to design um, specific molecules that may be able to interfere with that pathway that's 
um, governing the, the, the cancer growth. Um, and if they design a new drug, then that drug needs to be tested. Um, and although you can do certain amount of work in a laboratory with animal experiments, at some point you have to test those new drugs in people. And so the initially a new treatment is brought into clinical trials and where the first things we're concerned about are patient safety. And the first kind of experiments and clinical trials that are done in people is to make sure that the patient is safe um, on a treatment. Um, and then the second kind of trial that we'll do will be to start looking at efficacy to see whether a new treatment actually does have some, um, some does actually work against the, the cancer that we're trying to treat. And then ultimately we'll do what we call a phase three trial where we compare a new treatment against the old treatment to see whether the new treatment is better than the traditional treatment. So it's quite a long and arduous process um, and we try and work very closely with our patients to explain to them what the trial is, is aimed to do and, um, and to make sure that they feel safe and comfortable about taking part in that study. Um, some people do it in the hope that they will benefit and other people recognize that they're trying to help people for the future. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of research that is going on across the whole, well, the whole of the UK is, is very involved in clinical trials. We have a very strong program of clinical trials in pancreatic cancer now that is, is um, a national initiative to try and improve outcomes for these patients. So it should be seen as a good thing to be offered the opportunity to take part in a clinical trial. I'm going to try and pronounce a word here and I might get it wrong. We're talking about the difference between adjuvant chemo and neoadjuvant chemo. Okay. Um, I mentioned that about 10% uh, of patients are able to have uh, surgery to try and remove their primary pancreatic cancer. But we know that even if a patient goes through that kind of surgery, they have a very high chance of the cancer coming back. So we know that if you follow people for five years after having a, 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 an operation or a Whipple procedure, as it's called, to remove a pancreatic cancer, the five-year survival rate is, is under 10%. But if some amount of chemotherapy can help to reduce the, the risk of recurrence, then um, that's a good thing. So we have tested chemotherapy drugs after surgery to try and reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. And in fact, we've done a number of clinical trials that have shown that if you combine um, and offer um, six months of, of chemotherapy after um, your surgery, then we can actually improve that five-year survival rate to about 30%. So that's a significant improvement to just surgery alone. So we call that adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, and we offer that routinely to patients who've undergone primary surgery. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy is chemotherapy given prior to surgery. So again, if you think about all those patients who are diagnosed and we look at their scans um, that they have, their, their um, CT scans that are done at the time of diagnosis, Quite often, it's quite difficult to, to see um, that primary tumor and to, and to see clearly as to whether it's going to be easily removable by surgery. 
um, some of these we call borderline receptible. And that's because the, the pancreatic cancer sits very close to a lot of other major structures, blood vessels um, and other organs. Um, so when it starts to grow, it can stick to these vessels and make it very difficult for the surgeons to remove the cancer. So if a cancer is thought to be what we call borderline operable, then the question arises as to whether it might be worth trying to give some of that chemotherapy up front before the surgery to try and shrink the cancer a little bit so that the surgeon has a better chance of doing a successful operation. So we call that neoadjuvant chemotherapy when the chemotherapy is being given prior to the surgery with a view to trying to improve the chances of a successful operation. There's a lot for everybody to be taking in and people who are listening to this may or may not be go, you know, dealing with a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Uh, me, certainly. This feels overwhelming and I'm not in the midst of it. How do you deal with people or, or deal with patients who are going through what is a terrible, terrible time, but, but explain it, everything to them? It's, it's a very difficult time, obviously, for patients and their families, and it's very distressing. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's tough on the staff as well. So we do work as a multidisciplinary team. And for example, we meet on a weekly basis um, as a team of oncologists, surgeons, radiologists, pathologists. And alongside the main medical staff, we have specialist nurses and dietitians palliative care nurses and doctors. So we're you know, quite a, a, a significant team of people with, who come with different levels of expertise in order to, 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 to try and support the patient and the family. Um, so um, I think the, one of the, the, the kind of the bits of cement to all of this are the specialist nurses. So patients and, and families will be aware that they ought to be linked up with what's called a key worker. Quite often the key worker in the hospital is a specialist nurse and they are very skilled people who work between the medical teams. So for example, the patient who may be going from, a, from an operation, having had their surgery and then coming through to clinic to see me to have a conversation about adjuvant chemotherapy, then the continuity between the surgical part of the care and the oncology part of the care is that nurse specialist team. So they're really important people to support um, support the patient. Um, and we try and keep obviously the, the GP, the primary care team fully informed as to what's happening as well. So it is, it's a, it is a very complex disease and it's a very difficult um, time, um, both in terms of making diagnosis um, and getting the right treatment to the patient at the right time. Um, so it, it's not easy, um, but we have a very skilled team. Um, patients are managed in what we call pancreatic cancer centres. Um, so each region around the country has a specialist pancreatic cancer centre um, where hopefully there is very good expertise in this area um, and we can be used for advice and, and help with difficult cases and so on. What would you say is the most challenging thing about your job? <laughs> oh dear. I think the challenging thing for pancreatic cancer is, is exactly the kind of things that we've already touched on, that it's 
it, the disease presents so late that it makes it very difficult for us to do anything to help patients. Um, and if we could diagnose cancer earlier, it would give us a, a better start, a better chance to be able to get some of the, the new treatments that are coming through to the patient. So you know, we do have some amazing new strategies and um, therapies that are coming through and making a difference in, in many other types of cancer. Um, but um, it's difficult to get these new drugs to um, give them a fighting chance to work in pancreatic cancer because quite often um, the disease is already quite late at, at diagnosis. So uh, that is really challenging to know that you know, we, we could potentially help people if only we could get, get the diagnosis sooner. And that's not without, not for want of trying, um, you know, but it, it's, very, it's a very difficult diagnosis to make. It grows insidiously um, with non-specific symptoms and, and it can take quite a long time to, to make a diagnosis. So early diagnosis of pancreatic cancer would be uh, a really great thing if we could crack that. Now, you might be listening to all of this and feeling a bit overwhelmed and possibly a bit down about everything. I know I certainly felt those feelings at points when I was doing the interviews. Well, I want to offer you a bit of hope. This year, NICE guidelines for pancreatic cancer changed to recommend surgery early on rather than treating jaundice first. Now, obviously, I'm in no way, shape or form an expert in this, but luckily, I know a woman who is. Vicky Stevenson-Hornby is an award-winning specialist nurse for pancreatic, liver and bile duct cancers. She and her team have recently won a Nursing Times Award for Cancer Nursing, now, this is in recognition of the work she does to fast track patients with jaundice to get earlier diagnosis. Like I say, I'm not the expert. Vicky is. Anyone who um, gets a, a sudden onset jaundice that they, they can see visibly, some yellowing of the skin or yellowing of the whites of their eyes, that should immediately alarm them and they should either be going to the hospital, um, to the emergency department or to their GP. Um, sometimes this is picked up before you can see it visibly and what I mean by that is someone goes along to the GP has kind of the well man or well woman check has some routine bloods and the bloods are showing some jaundice even though it's not yet visible um, and equally we are getting those patients referred through and getting them diagnosed earlier using the um, accelerated pathway that we've got which means we can refer them earlier for surgery. I was going to say, I mean, it, the way that people with jaundice are being looked at now, has that changed at all? I think what's changed is um, the offer, if, if you will, for want of a better description, is the approach of fast track surgery. So historically, people, if they were jaundiced and we did find a problem, um, we would try to relieve the jaundice first. So since the implementation of fast-track pathways for surgery, which were initially started in Birmingham and have been replicated in Manchester, which is where we um, refer into, we don't want to relieve that jaundice first. We want to get surgery earlier. So I think that's what's changed in how we try to manage it. Um, instead of intervening first, which then can potentially result in a delay while you wait for that jaundice to settle, 
we want to find people who are jaundiced, get them diagnosed with the scans and get them across for surgery before anyone's done things like putting stents in or tried to relieve that jaundice. And what are the benefits of doing that then? Of going straight to surgery? Yeah. Yeah. So um, if we can get someone scanned and diagnosed and that they are deemed to be operable and we can refer them across to a surgical centre, then they can go straight for surgery, assuming that they are fit enough, of course, and they're assessed um, quite comprehensively. But the benefit of that is you've not got the potential complications that you can get if someone's had a stent placed into their bile duct to try and relieve that jaundice and help that bile to flow that in itself it is required to relieve jaundice and in people who cannot have an operation that's what you want to do relieve the the jaundice but it can then in itself lead to complications people can get um pancreatitis after they've had a stent placed and if you get someone who's got pancreatitis that will delay them getting to an operation and can on occasion mean that they become inoperable when they were operable at the, at the time of diagnosis. Seems to make a lot of sense then doesn't it? Yeah absolutely perfect sense and we want to get more people across for surgery. Um, Manchester were the second site to offer fast track mm. surgery yeah and um, Birmingham were first um, and I don't work at Manchester I work at Wigan so we don't offer surgery at Wigan we refer into Manchester so what I wanted to try to do at Wigan was get a pathway that we could find these patients earlier because it's all very well having fast track surgery and that's fantastic but if you're not finding the patients to refer them for surgery early enough then you, you never get in, then patients are not in, never getting that benefit, if you will. Um, so for a district general to have a pathway which we have successfully implemented to get people scanned um, the same day and discussed the same day with the surgeons and sometimes even transferred across to Manchester the same day to get that surgery within seven days of the scan. How does that feel being doing that and being, you know, leading that? Fantastic. It does. And to see the success that it's been and and we may not be talking about huge numbers of patients but we've increased the number from Wigan alone and I can't speak for other sites but from Wigan the number previously before this pathway that were referred across for surgery was nine percent and since the pathway we've referred 40 percent across for surgery which is when that was in the first 12 months and I could have never ever hoped for that I couldn't have dared to hope for that I wanted it to be a success but I could have have dared to hope for that and of course you say you know that maybe like the numbers aren't high but for those families for those patients and everyone connected to them every second and it is literally every second counts doesn't it absolutely yeah it does and I've had um some people who've said, oh, I'm not sure about having a scan and getting across the next day to, for somebody to be facing surgery. But the feedback we have had from patients and families was that the speed helped them, that they knew someone was doing something and that they weren't having a big wait then. As soon as you've told someone that news and that they can have an operation, that's what they want. And to be able to get that done with speed is, and to be a part of that is it's fantastic. And I guess it helps them feel like someone's on their side as well, doesn't it? I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Um, from the time that someone's referred through from the GP and I make that initial call, I always give them a call 
first um, just to be sure that they know they've been referred and what to expect. And I try to prepare them at that time that things potentially might happen very quickly. And of course, they may come for the scan and it may be gallstones for that particular person. Um, and then they may have had all this worry and, and stress that they're going for tests very, very quickly. And, and then the relief that, oh, well, actually it was gallstones. But for those people that are getting that cancer diagnosis, to know that someone is kind of the driving it forward, getting your scan, getting that scan reported, having the discussions with the surgeon if it's someone who is operable, hopefully they feel that someone is, is fighting the corner. Which I hope I do. And I was going to say as well, it's n- the fear of the unknown is sometimes even worse than the fear of the known, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I think, you know, sometimes people are already worrying that they've, they've developed jaundice, they're worrying about what this could be before they've even had the referral made and before that first phone call from me. So they're wondering, well, what's coming next and what's coming next? And just to try and guide them along that. And things are coming thick and fast that they're coming for bloods and then having a scan, then we got the scan reported and then it may be you're going across and you're going to see a surgeon and hopefully they're going to be able to offer you an operation in the next few days. It's a lot of information for people to to take on board. Um, but it's the, the feedback and, and the comments that we get is, but they know then what they're dealing with. Before that, it was, well, what could it be? It could be this, it could be that. Can I have an operation? Can I not? But once they know and that's confirmed, they just want that surgery as quickly as possible. Even though it is, of course, huge surgery to undertake, they just want that chance and that's what it's giving people. And if someone's listening to this and thinking, do you know what, I'm sort of seeing a few signs of jaundice, but I've been ignoring it because I don't feel ill. I just, you know, I'm, I'm feeling okay. What would you say to them? Go to the doctor or go to um, A&E, either or, because either or we can, you know, whoever is listening to it and wherever about in the country they are, go and have it checked out. Because my kind of take is that jaundice, which is not really presenting you with any other symptoms other than yellowing of your skin, you need to rule out the serious things first. And you're never wasting anyone's time, are you? No. Definitely not. If someone is is developing sudden jaundice, you know, some conditions, people can have lifelong conditions where they sometimes get jaundice, um, you know, and, and that can be something they've known about since they were in their teens. But someone developing jaundice who's never had that before, and especially if they don't have accompanying symptoms, but even if they do, even if they have got some symptoms of pain, nausea, Go and get it checked out as soon as you can as a matter of priority. Thank you for listening to this, our second episode. Later on this week, you'll be hearing from a practice nurse who is fighting to raise awareness of pancreatic cancer, of those symptoms within GP practices. It's after her mum died of the disease nine years ago. Make sure you don't miss out on this episode by subscribing to the podcast and you can find out more by heading to the website www.purplerainbow.co.uk. Mm-hmm.